Courts Podcast. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Uh, we're going to jump into this week's album fairly quick. I just have a few announcements. Haven't done any bumps in a while. I want to give my good friend Megaran a shout out. His brand new album, Random, comes out, came out this week on iTunes and Bandcamp and everywhere else you can buy it um, on his online store. It's available. Um, <laughs> Essentially I bring, is what you're saying. I bring it up because he was uh, he was talking about this set album in the interview I did with him for Crash Chords Autographs. Um, it's a merging of his two personas. He first started, up, started out rapping under the name Random and his stuff wasn't as nerd influenced. He was just trying to come up and become a he was fighting himself yeah and so this new one is Megaran he meets his own persona there are interludes between Megaran and Random and how the merging of these personas have become one it's very introspective he he meets himself that's a paradox yeah no 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 have you ever read Vonnegut and his character Kilgore Trout in his books I'm aware of it him (laughs) and in I believe it was Breakfast for Champions he actually meets his persona, Kilgore Trout, how he viewed himself, yeah, and actually has a discussion where him as the author is talking to him as the persona, explaining to him how he's been writing Kilgore Trout's life. That's pretty. It's yeah. it's Vonnegut, so it was so fun. weird. You're it was just purely fun. Enter into the meta stuff, and I, but personality-wise, that does remind me of the whole Schaefer concept. Yes, the his concept behind uh, Six pa- Six Passenger. Right, but this is less of coming to grips with who you've become and more about actually approaching you from your past. It's more of a time paradox right, thing. Right, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's influenced by that at all. I mean, he's a big nerd. So I mean, Vonnegut wasn't the first or the only one to ever do something, something like, this, like that. But yeah. it was that's what. That that sounds really cool. Well, good, good. There should be more sci-fi music. Fantasy's everywhere in music lately. I'm, I'm in fact, it. it's more like fantasy. No, yeah. it's sci-fi. No, it's paradoxes are sci-fi. Because this is more. This is his is so more. So it'll cease to exist it's, because well, that's what a paradox. Paradoxes are self-correcting. Well, I don't know. You'll have to listen to the album. I guess so. Stinger. Um, but yeah, go check out his new record. I fight um, through all the music's gone. It just deletes itself. <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm excited that it's out, and I'm excited to hear it myself because I haven't yet. So go check that out. Um, also, I want to give a little shout out to the 24-Hour Company, and they're doing a currently a 24-hour. The 24-Hour Company is doing a Kickstarter for 24 days leading up to a big gala that they're doing to raise money for their Nationals program, which helps uh, young emerging artists. And uh, you can go to their Kickstarter page. You can look up the 24-Hour Plays and check it out. They have great bonuses and and, and um, what are the things called in Kickstarter? The... Um, Gold? No. Not uh, goals. Rewards? Rewards. Yes. Uh, for depending on how much you donate. And um, it, it goes to a good cause because to help emerging artists really get a start in the industry. Um, I've, of course, talked about them for the 24-hour musicals, which Steve had come to one of them. A couple of times um, over the last few years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the 24-hour plays as well. So uh, it's for a good cause. So uh, check it out and throw them some money. It's for the cause. It's for the cause. It's for the cause. That's right. Um, it's Kickstarter. It's crowdsourced funding. I mean, it's if you like it, just give them money. That's what it's there for. Yep. That's true. Um, and there are some cool little uh, um, rewards for doing so, depending on how much you donate. Um from here we go into Steve's pick for this week. All right. This week we are doing Ratatat's new album, Magnifique. 
and to correct my mistake from last week, that is with a Q and yeah. not a G. Yeah. That was actually my, my mistyping very, it below. They're very similar Yeah, that artist looking. went dyslexic, and I thought yeah. that little thing that hanged down, like, curved instead the, of going backwards like yeah. the Q does. Anyway, Magnifique. Um, Ratatat has been around for a while. They've been around since about 2001. They are Brooklyn-based. Considered, at least by Wikipedia, a Rocktronica duo. But this time I'm not going to criticize that. I think that's actually pretty fair. Because yes, it's electronic, but yeah, you know, the, the guitar sound, the guitar synth is always so laden throughout their work. You really do get a rock sound. You get a very indie rock sound in almost everything they do, despite the fact that it is 90% electronic. But within that, we also have all those other little subcategories like... Uh, Indie, separately, and in above itself. Experimental, electronic rock, which is like the same thing. I don't know why that needs to even be said. And finally, neo-psychedelia. Screw Wikipedia. <laughs> I know. That's ne all I have to well, say. Well, ne neo-psychedelia might imply something like funk or something like that, which always had a uh, heavy influence yep. on psychedelia. And there's definitely some funk in there. But anyway, it's a two-man project. Uh, Evan Mast and Mike Stroud. And I think a lot of people go back to the group Ratatat because they are such a funky group. They're very easy to just, like, put on the car stereo. And, of course, they're great for nightclubs. You know, it's just like it, it doesn't reach back into the nightclub scene of, like, the 90s and the 80s. It seems to be it's a whole new thing. Yeah. It seems to be a very modern approach. Yes, there are occasionally repetitive um, uh, riffs, but that's what you expect because that's how you groove to it. That's how you dance to it. And with that, they actually do a lot of creative things. My first experience with Ratatat was, like, pff, first day of college or something. My roommate was playing it, and I was just like, this is cool. I like it. I will follow them as a group. Um, <laughs> My first I think what I had first heard was their album Classics, by the way, and that seems to be the album that really popularized them. Everyone I've talked to ever since, whenever I suggest Ratatat, they're like, oh, yeah, I love Classics. I'm no different. The first album I ever heard by them was Classics, and back in the day when radio was still really a thing I listened to, um, Long Pipe, which was one of the singles off that album, was the first song that I heard and I got into. I believe actually came up not on the regular radio but digital radio i was listening to pandora and i'd been listening to other indie stuff and it recommended this um i think i made a daft punk channel and there had okay been okay because you said indie and well, i wouldn't classify them as like that close to indie. no no but, but daft definitely yeah, see the relationship and also yeah that. indisputably like people who were daft punk followers back in the 90s will be ratatat people in the 2000s yeah so. i mean there, there was a lot of similarities instrumentally i mean because daft punk also experimented with a lot of rock and roll stuff as well as club stuff yep so yeah uh, let's dive into it magnifique track one very appropriately called intro this is the first time in a while actually on an album that we've reviewed we get just a straight up intro track that only serves the purpose of being an intro um it starts with the sound that sounds like someone tuning a radio which we'll see a lot throughout this record very harsh though i mean yeah. it can be a little grating within the first few seconds and then finally once it settles into it it decides on a thing and that thing is this straightforward piano classical ditty. In fact, it sounds like something little baby Mozart would be playing to, you know, his courtroom, just for a few bars there, with the exception of uh, the sound in the background, this this oscillation that accompanies it, which still makes it sound very rat-a-tat, and even to some extent a little bit queen. It's like the kind yeah. of oscillations that they would use with the whammy bar in a lot of albums they did. It reminded me of Brian May's guitar style. Yeah. And with those bends in the guitar, the... It's 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 weird because the guitar gets elongated pretty dramatically as the song goes along. Uh, the chords themselves, the, the the way the piece shapes up, even though the track itself is very short, it's only about a minute long, mm -hmm. it evolved very rapidly guitar-wise, but because of the pacing of the guitar, because of the actual chords of the guitar, having such 
almost two or three seconds for some of them. It does not feel so short. Well, it only seems to be uh, the, the piano with the guitar like accompanying it. It's like the real dominant sound here is the piano. The guitar seems to maybe be doubling it, or it's mm -hmm. just the oscillation that goes with the the, the synth uh, tacked on with the piano. So you know, it's it's. It's an oddball thing, but then again, I don't really, I don't really associate the word oddball with ratatat because to say so would just be ratatat. Right. <laughs> it's like. Well, and also I feel like because of that radio tuner thing, that's kind of their free pass to go. Hey, here's the thing we found. Like they're kind of showing it as if someone was streaming through the radio. Yeah, and actually, when you consider that, to classics and some of the other stuff they did was pretty tight, and normally with the the tightness and with the re repetition, you don't get the same chance to experiment. And it seems like they're using this album as an opportunity to do this within the intros, and obviously the intro and the outro to the album, and also the intros and outros of the tracks themselves, where yeah. we return to the same thing that we started with, that like radio tuning noise. And then finally, we're into track two, Cream on Chrome. Which is the first full length track of the record. Um, and it starts with this kind of funky groove that I equated to a Sunset Strip kind of vibe, like walking down the Sunset Strip and checking stuff out. Um, it's very steady. Moment by moment, it doesn't really deviate too far from where it is. It, it really does become a very riff-oriented song right away. Well, again, to to say so would be to describe Rat Attack. It's, yeah. it's, it's steady, Well, not everybody it, can... Yeah. We have to. Of course. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is pretty straight forward. I do really like the little faux hi-hat that they included, like the end of phrases here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice drum riff, very basic, but the bass itself is actually, I think, one of the most dynamic instruments here. Uh, later on, it seems to even be doubled uh, by maybe another bass, another track there. And, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, we attack on some other things like the guitar. I don't find that to be really a melody at this point. It's mm -hmm. just color. It's just its own riff. Yeah. So, you know, there. this is this is building what Ratatat does. They attack on one riff on top of another riff, uh, color on top of color, and then finally they will yield the melody. And it's mostly the draws on the guitar that seems to yield that melody. The way it starts elongating, as those pieces get tightened up mm -hmm. to full-fledged, just more or strum-oriented, the piece sort of develops its melody sectionally, or yeah. in, in, in spurts and starts. Well, I think there was a more defined moment here when I think you'd say you probably would just get section one, and I think that's after maybe like 24 measures of this, uh, around like 48, 50 seconds, then all of a sudden this like buzzing electric guitar steps in, and that's just the sound that I think most people even associate with Ratatat. Uh, on their earlier work. It's, 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 it's what defined them, I think. The kind of electronic that just said, all right, we are our own thing. Yes, we are below, you know, if you liked electronic, you will probably like us, but we are individuals. And it was um, pretty interesting for me. I just kind of grooved along to it. I like what they did in little uh, sectional asides. For instance, there were moments when there's like the percussions of steps in with these little watery pops in the background. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed that. I also like the various crescendos here that just, like, you know, take you a little bit closer to the melody. It's great stuff. Well, what I like about this track also is from the very get-go, and this is something that I'm familiar with with Ratatat, is that you get a very strong sense of character from the song. It's, it feels like there's stuff going on, there's stuff to glean. And even you said this later, more so on the album, but the instruments kind of also give almost a vocal vibe, like they're trying to give a narrative story. Yeah. The back and forth between the A and the B section that gets broken up when it goes into that melody solo concrete part where it's not really a solo because the guitar is not 
soloing here and it's even not being comped in a solo it really just fully defines the melody but the melody isn't quite matching up to the previous a and b section it's curious because it does not feel divorced this is this is something it feels like it's just a, a hybrid of the two previous sections and it's very masterfully done in this song well there was a transition at least in between are you talking about the section that kind of closes out the track yeah with yeah. that section yeah it was so a kind of a break and then all of a sudden yeah it is almost a new thing i i would probably describe it as something completely separate but at the same time it feels like you've been building to it and i think it has to do with the transition that 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 was in the middle here this is sort of a bass solo everything just strips away and it's down to just this pure bass the guitar re-enters albeit gradually and then out of this the guitar and the bass together tend to get gradually brighter as if like it's kind of lifting off or something and right. you, you pull out the um the clutter pull out the muddiness there's a really really cool effect and then you get that and then we're into this jam that concludes the entire track and it, it lasts for quite a while but i was absolutely loving this the the guitar melody it, it feels so exotic in its midst stepping up to the ninth i really really adored this this to me actually was was a whole new side of ratatat that i hadn't even seen um on classics in the or in the early days and that's why i like to refer to it as the hybridization of that first a and b section back and forth we were getting in the very beginning of the song it's familiar, like you said, but it is a separate piece. It's mm -hmm. it's the the child of of the two put together. There's sort of allusions to one and the other, but neither are concrete enough. It's still its own individual in a, section. In a way, yes, and in a way, no. I feel like by the time you arrive at it, there is a chance that you might forget the earlier sections of the, of the, the piece. But I don't think that's detrimental, because they essentially overtook you with this, this closing section. And I, I love the, the, the way they went about it as well. I mean, the, there's a harmonization in here where the secondary guitar steps in, and they're both operating in fourths, um, but only in various intervals. They do that for a few measures, and then one instrument pulls away, leaving just the solo, and then you get another, like, pause where it's just this, this static, and then it goes dives right back in just for, like, the final encore of this song, of the same song. What I also like is like, even though you're talking about how this is still a little bit different for Ratatat, aesthetically it's more, it's it's what I expect from them as far as this great kind of cruising, grooving kind of music, yeah. which they've done on previous albums. Even though the sound and the intricacies are a little different, feel a little more evolved, the aesthetics of the overall track is definitely something familiar to what I expect from Ratatat. Um, at the end of this track, we get that same radio tuning sound right. that we'd gotten before, which is kind of the linking pin in the whole album, we'll find out. And um, this this time it actually even went further than it did in other times later mm. in the album. It, this it seemed to go into like you hear people talking in the background and then you hear um, like a whole bossa nova insert, yeah, like just for a few bars or so. And it was like a, a full on track, maybe for like five to ten seconds. But it's very, very bright, very tinny, as if it's like playing through a transistor radio. Yeah. Very strange. And I think then it, all of a sudden it phases out again. It feels like an excuse to insert other things that they want to play with without actually committing yeah. to it full force. You definitely get the idea that this entire album is like a still shot of the radio panel in your car. And yeah. There's some, there's some hand it plays, tuning to what he likes, and the things that he likes are the songs they give you. Well, think of yeah. uh, Cream on Chrome. Think of the just the interior of say like a 1970s goat or Camaro oh, with and the cream what the radio. The radio is going to be bright. Go back it's to the 50s to... though. That's when you really get your chrome like full force. Exactly. I mean, it's it's very much in your face. It's going to be the one shining point 
in the nice, smooth, supple leather that you're sitting as you're cruising along to. Well, what's the next little piece that we arrive at then? Track three, Magnifique, the title track. Um, this was a lot more relaxing. It's not as much of a jam. Instead, this is very slow, very beautiful, very sweeping. You get that sort of uh, synthetic orchestra sound in the background, and then to follow that, electric guitar, follow that little piano just tapping away. Kind of sounded like a, this like 1950s doo-wop thing, which is the very steady, just like upper register piano chords. <laughs> the guitar was sort of contrasting it. The the strings were very spaced out, not spacey. Ooh, I mean, like, they were just so far apart from yeah. one another. It was a weird kind of effect. And when the drums come in, that also is replicating the doo-wop. So it's almost like you're having two different sides of the song sort of competing with one another. Because yeah. as the song goes along, it doesn't seem to really go anywhere. Here we're, also- we're just getting pieces of flair. The re-renditions of the A's and B sections that are going on are just adding in little changes, but they're not really, in my opinion, building anything at this point. It's not building much, but there is a distinct melody, which is why it's about time I say we're, we're pulling a little bit of a Freudian slip here by, by calling all of these tracks songs. Because, of course, yeah. there are no lyrics. Yeah. But the way in which the guitar plays, you'd almost think there were. And the way they're structured by verse and chorus, they're just, they're so song-like you know, it's almost it's almost not inappropriate to say so. Well, with Ratatat, their band that I often forget is instrumental because their songs just sound, a lot of them sound like such great indie tracks yeah. that sound like they could easily have lyrics over them. This track, however, I, I agree with John a bit, though. Even though like I like the structure and the place it went, by the halfway mark, it did feel a little repetitive only because the previous track introduced new stuff, made movements, made strides. This one kind of was comfortable and staying steady in the place it was. It depends on how you see comfortable. Like I found this very romantic initially, very oh, sure. blissful. Um, I think it kind of lived up to the name, Magnifique, for sure. It, it, it rang of something just very pure. But then again, it's not as if Ratatat as a whole had ever been like confrontational. You no. know, it's not giving you this this intensive narrative where there's strife at play. It always seemed to be pretty relaxing. But this even takes that that one step further. It it, it felt like it was living in the 1950s doo-wop, albeit, albeit heavily uh, electronicized. And uh, I don't know, that's about all I could say for it. It wasn't a terribly long track, for sure. I mean, I would say that the most interesting thing about this is because it existed in that doo-wop place, but yeah. there were no lyrics. It's rare that doo-wop songs didn't have lyrics because, I mean... Yeah, even if it was onomatopoeia or just saying saying non- nonsense, like to give it kind of a hum mm-hmm. and a flow, where this didn't have any of that, which I think is what ma- kept me interested. Is this kind of you kept anticipating lyrics that never came. The one thing that it did have was was somewhere toward the middle it, when it when it did depart to like the second section before returning to the first at the mm-hmm. end. It seemed like the whole uh, track was in that ternary form, but in the middle it seemed to get a little bit sadder, just like this this little twang where the guitars took on you know in their lyrical way they took on. On this this emotion that just seemed a little bit more depressing, maybe not quite as blissful. But I I've seen recalls having this discussion not too long ago that you know there always seems to be some little thing in the back of, of even happy songs or blissful songs. How could you really be that blissful? There needs to be something wrong. It's just <laughs> it's too perfect. It doesn't work. And then we move on to track four, abrasive, which is in direct contrast of what you just said. This one, right away, you're getting a lot of tapping rhythm very very quick tapping but it's muddy it's clouded it's it's got cotton around it and it slowly clarifies and it's a great effect 
it, that that's the perfect way to describe it. It's it slowly clarifies by 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 each instrument, like one by one, this level uh, this this layer of muddiness is removed. And I thought that was pretty interesting. But I certainly wouldn't like uh, considering your segue. You know, the track is called abrasive, but it's not necessarily not. like this. Is, yeah, this is very just happy go lucky indie but, rock. That's only uh, a, a textural observation. Exactly. Uh, texturally, it is a big difference from Magnifique. Sure. So I mean, it could be considered abrasive, but I feel like also what I like about this song that Steve brought up um, is that it has this kind of super positive vibe but it's reminiscent of the more indie side of Ratatat like I could have easily seen Julian Casablancas of The Strokes singing over this track easily like it really felt The Strokes kind of upbeat vibe in their songs that were often horribly depressing though they sounded upbeat and it does go through a build even after the clarity comes through a lot of instrumentation does come on top of this it gets big-ish it doesn't get big though yeah, you you were saying you made an observation earlier that's like epic with a lowercase e. I mean, yeah, this is this it's not is, movie epic. It's not you know novel epic. It's TV epic. Yeah, and you know of course I usually shy away from the word epic. It's starting to get really I think worn on all of us here. Yeah, well, it's everyone, starting to mean nothing. Everyone likes to everything. consider their music or their art form epic, but I, I definitely see why this one. It you could feel it wanting to be bigger than it is, but I almost see that as part of the art here, mm-hmm. just because of the trade-offs between this this bright effect and this really muddy effect, It especially when it's like really at the, at the bright end, it almost feels a little bit like 16-bit at, at, at points, as if it was just like the title screen for some kind of SNES game. Well, And, also, and it's just st- static, like there. In other words, you're going to get a story, but the story's, you know, how much of a story can you really layer in the title screen? That's sure. it. You're just about to make your choice, and this is just capturing the whole entire thing. So it's pretty family-friendly. It's a strength of aesthetic in the intro moments. Um, mm-hmm. And that super positive narrative, though, does come through based on what you were saying earlier. It still feels like certain instruments are almost giving a lyrical narrative, even though they're not actually quite. Also, what what it had going for it is it was quirkier than the previous tracks. The accents that it had kind of gave it this character that was unique to previous songs on the record so far. Certainly. I also like the interplay between the, the guitars here. It seemed like they were, you know, they were working off each other rather than just the melody figuration. There seemed to be a trade-off melody. Uh, especially was present when the guitar would do... It would just start doing work during little little breaks in between the rein, uh, reinvention of the muddiness. Yeah. And that was some of the more interesting parts of the song. But the light, sugary aspect of the song itself wasn't quite enough to keep me entrenched in the song. It it kept just swaying from muddy to bright and then muddy to bright. I would say it's more even than track two, Cream on Chrome. But definitely this one did kind of stay in the same place longer, I felt. It is even. The one little bit of character that I did find was the interplay between those guitars. They are, they're the ones which, as we said in the previous track, but maybe more to in a, in a bigger way here, they feel so lyrical. that You feel like there are two characters at play, and those are the, the two guitars. Um, beyond that, it's really just like these subtle changes that the track throws you, even through to uh, part two and then back to part one at the end. Um, it's mostly just the same riff. We just kind of like shift the chords around gradually, and with it, the emotional center of the piece changes subtly, very subtly. Yeah. In other words, if you had an impression earlier on, you'll have a slightly different impression somewhere in the middle, but it's not like this. this it's not a, it's not a narrative, as yeah. I said. It's yeah. just a sort of a summary. In fact, the only thing we really get, the only breaks we really get in this piece, are just these like giant oscillations, which seem to like supplant everything. All of a sudden, all instruments are gone, then we get these oscillations that take us into this break, and then we kind of just like 
like pick it up again. There is a breakdown though of sorts that kind of just revisits the muddiness from mm -hmm. earlier, which is why I hesitate even to really call it a breakdown. Um, but we do get the bass solo. We get all the things you'd expect to get uh, gradually the guitar kind of layers in here. But the funny thing is that before we revisit, before we come out of this breakdown, revisit the first section, there were some transitions that I thought were a little bit sloppy, just like these sections where all you hear is the drums, and it's just like this drum slowdown, you know, where the tempo really starts to, this whole ritardando, or we're really slowed for one second, then, then bam, we're right back in part one. There was no real transition there. It was just kind of, all right, the drums are going to do a thing. I mean, I and think... then we're back in, and that was a little weird because maybe it's because you you tend to associate like Ratatat as being this very tempo steady, you know, beholden to the tick, beholden to the little flashing red light in the studio, and that's it. And and all of a sudden here they decide to abandon that. It's not that that in itself was a poor thing. I just think that the execution of this particular transition was a little poor. I guess. I mean, I didn't really notice it that hard, but also at that point this track had felt even enough that like. Little things like that I might have just glazed over at that point, especially since it was in the breakdown. But Well, well for the minus mark, I'll give it a final plus, and that was <laughs> I enjoyed the higher flourishes that they yeah. included in the final return. It seemed, a, it seemed to be a little bit bigger than it was, you know, in the first, in the first section. So from there we go to track five, Kuntash, and I am led to believe that is taken from the Lamborghini Kuntash. Right. Um, which, I mean, I can Which I never see. knew was ended in CH, personally, but now I do. Um, now we all do. <laughs> now we all do. We all learn something. <laughs> yes. Knowing is half the battle. Gee, uh, no, wait, that's copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> Kuntash, we get Wawa right away. Well, there is this like really thick bass warble that kind of consumes this entire track. But I guess because you know you layered in the idea of me thinking, all right, this is this is very auto driven. You know, that's that's what this track is going to be. It's going to be about the Lamborghini, essentially. Yeah. It's going to summarize it, or you're, at least you're driving in your Countach. It, it might and be why I got that kind of neon skyline feel, because Countaches are pretty and sleek cars. Yeah, you were so saying it's like a sunset strip kind of track. Almost, yeah, also, right? yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you get the idea. There is like this, I, I don't know, you're on the highway of sorts, but maybe you're in, I don't know, maybe you're fixing your car, because I got these like machinery, like, or the, tools falling amidst your work, you know? You have the car up on the lift and you're just working on it. And, and every two measures or so, at the ends of these two measures, you hear this clanking of metal. And, and then that's it. That's like the only element, but it really sounds like a bunch of ratchets. But, but as it goes along and starts adding in a, additional pieces, it takes me out of the car itself. It takes me out of even the the the, the fixing, the mechanics bay. Yeah. It takes me into the dealership, which is <laughs> weird. It feels like it became a major commercial for, you know, this is the next big thing. The next big thing is not a Countach. It, it's it's not. Lambo's been making them for quite some time now. I'm not. No, it's not. It was very. It was very like they were the king of the eighties. Yeah. But, but yeah. that's it. But it's. <laughs> Between the the distortion wah-wah that's going on, trying to promote the sexy, and the, the flair that's on top of it, it's like they're trying to start reading off the, the differences. It's a V12 engine. Ooh. It know. starts losing its glamour for me pretty but quickly that's through just the song. The thing, because it lost its glamour and because this felt a little dull to me or a little familiar, you know, just like I was saying about Ratatat earlier, I, they are, well... They're the electronica of this generation, of, sure. of this decade in a way. Or maybe last decade, we don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how big are they going to keep it? Instead, this actually felt a little 80s. This actually did it seem did. like it reached back, and it was 
well, if that's when the Countach was big, then it, it just seems appropriate. Sure. There's nothing really out of the out of the ordinary for this track. It also kind of slinked along. This is the first time we kind of had that kind of, like, it kind of dragged along. It didn't really, like, leap, leap forward like previous tracks had with new segments and new stuff. It kind of just was content in its little bit of ruddiness kind of to move forward in this very predictable pattern. Yeah. And Slinking. That's it. Yeah. That's that's the problem I got. It's so predictable after a while. And the song, once again, not too long, but it's so predictable that it feels like I'm I'm on the the buy screen. Just I took a walk away and I come back in and the same music is being played. It's like Need for Speed or Gran Turismo. Another I was, one of those title I went screens, to the, yeah. Yeah, I went to the quote Lamborghini dealership and it's just keep spinning the car around and around waiting for me to decide, am I purchasing it or not? Am I going to go to Audi instead? I mean, it does not feel like it's invigorating anything. And to be named after a V12 engine car, that's like the antithesis at this point. Yeah, it was a little odd. It was it was definitely an oddball, and I feel like it definitely like betrayed the notion of the real modern, you know, cutting edge ratatat. This seemed to be just a little too familiar for me. And then it had another one of those really bizarre outros. Yeah, we got more time, radio changing again. This time it's like some a couple guys in the background just screaming, yeah, yeah, and then and then more clutter, and then finally onto track six, drift. And this is where we get another easygoing song. This one more kind of an islandy feel. We've got shakers. We feel like we're floating in the ocean, as Steve said. It sounds it sounds very very wet. I personally, I, I feel it sounds. As if... un, it's another one of those more muffled oriented pieces, more cottony pieces. Yeah, but it's got a couple of different things, and that is the 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 rhythm has. Almost an oompa going to it, but it's not a traditional well, acoustic instrument. I couldn't instrument. say what was making that sound initially, but to be honest, I think it is just the bass on the one, and then some kind of steel drumish sound on the end. But it also sounds a little bit organish. It's like if you just fused a steel drum and an organ together to make something that is otherwise known as a synthesizer, <laughs> right. then that's what you'd get. But it's like the bass combined with that, I think, is what's forging that oompa. But it is. I mean, it's very slow-paced, and with it, you do get that muffled sensation of, like, the way a steel drum or an organ come across. But the cool thing here is the melody, and it's the most dynamic melody I think we've yet had in this album. It's just a guitar melody that kind of ramps up what I had said two tracks ago. It's incredibly lyrical, and it's not that I really care here whether there's, like, words, you know, present or not, but... It seems to have this real knack for bringing out the human-like qualities here. If you're meant to feel relaxed during this piece, then the the bends in these guitar melodies, they seem to almost ring true to like a big stupid grin on your face, as opposed to what we traditionally associate bends as, which are more like tears. Instead, you don't get tears here, it's just another pure bliss track like Magnifique. Those subtle distortions that they're throwing in the guitar, the subtle changes, work great because it stays throughout with little hiccups here and there as the rest of the instruments sort of creep in and show their faces over time. It's not going full force with any other line as as the melody gets more complicated. It's just it's just being a little deviant. It's just, oh, oh, here's another little thing. Enjoy it. I like the way it's personifying the name. Everything just sort of shows up and drifts into the song as you go along. It's it's very slow paced, and that's why, like, because they take it, so they take their time with this. They let you really absorb every single sound they throw at you. So guitars will just like hold in the air, and then their 
overtaken by another guitar that maybe is, you know, a little bit off to the left, a little bit down the center, and then it steps in to complete the melody, but, you know, really taking its time to do so. It does, it's, it's so far from cauldron response. It's, it's just this elongated, matched unit. It's very strange. What I like aesthetically on this track is that it feels the most natural of a lot of tracks. Before this, we had a lot of tech and synth and very electronic influence, whereas here, they're all but seems to be not really much any electronic at all. It's very, feels like it's just the band playing on a beach shore or on a cruise ship or something. It's very... You say island, of, I still say country. <laughs> my point <laughs> is that it does feel very natural. It doesn't feel electronic. Well, it's, everything, as it gets introduced, feels very organically introduced. Yeah. That's the big thing. There's no reveal of any of these instruments. They just show up. As, as Steve said, they just trade off the phrases of the melody. They, they naturally will step up. It's... it's if you're going to speak voices, and voices is still something that we, we do have to talk about with these guitars, it's as if one singer is taking over for another, but still completing the lyrics, still completing the verses and choruses. And in a very human-like way. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why I think this stands out maybe more than some of the other tracks in that really heavily lyrical fashion it, it, it's, it's an odd approach for Ratatat because it's not what I traditionally associated them as. I tend to see Ratatat more for their grooves, not as much for their melodies. They're certainly not for human-like melodies, you know. They're, they're meant to sound kind of electronic, and you, you, you groove as you would expect to groove along with a machine or a beatbox. But here, it's just so, so uh, human-like, so dynamic. I, I, I don't know. It seems to be a new side of them, maybe a new direction they're going in. The, each voice has more independence than they than they had previously had on other albums. At the end of this track, we also get that radio tuning sound again. It's seeming to be more and more frequent. I feel like at this point, it's becoming a bit of a gimmick, an intentional gimmick, obviously, but, like, we get it. You're on, these are tracks on the radio. Yeah. At the same time, it also gives them a, a more leeway when you start introducing a new idea or changing the way the tempo of the album is going. When we go into the next track, Prick of brightness, but you say I. You say leeway. <laughs> Pricks of brightness. <laughs> Pricks of brightness. I, you say leeway. Multiple I pricks. say excuse. I feel like I don't know. I don't well, know that okay, I get the more right leeway. Away, he said potato. Next track, you say potato. Pricks of brightness. <laughs> the the tapping rhythm, the tapping idea from abrasive is back. Do you think yeah. that could have naturally grown from drift? There was a very different idea in drift, and here it's more acceptable because there was a breakup for me. I would say, though, even though it do- is re- this track does start out and stays kind of reminiscent of Abrasive, I feel like this song had more character than Abrasive. It, it, it does more than Abrasive did. Well, that's because when we start getting introduced the dual guitars again, one more acoustic, one more electric, these feel like they're much more flushed out. They feel like they get grander more organically again. And there, maybe that's a little bit of a callback to Drift as far as ideas go. But here... As the guitars build and start trading off with one another, it's just so much more flush, so much more full than Abrasive was. It's it's more flush, but it's also more, it's it's kind of a little bit more of the same in terms of tone. Very yeah. positive, very uplifting, uh, still sounds like kind of that modern indie feel. Um, these are still things that I would go to Ratatat for, though. I yeah. mean, it's just... I still am not getting the same, like, standout-ish moments that we got uh, ever since the second track here, uh, uh, Cream on Chrome. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, what I like about this song and what it does with its guitar solo work is around a minute and 50 seconds, it, it does a more unique kind of 
playful version of a guitar solo. It's not masturbatory like we've talked about before. It's not kind of expected. It's something a little different, a little more groovy that kind of builds on the idea of a guitar solo. That's the part that really reminded me of Queen again. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 that recurring sound bite that seems like that heavy, like a whammy effect that they might have thrown in um, on a lot of Queen tracks here. Very frilly guitars, especially in the pickups right into the measures. Um, but uh, let's see. I, I think really my favorite part Considering we were comparing it to Cream on Chrome, the, the Cream on Chrome was the last track that actually had like a big closing bash. Mm -hmm. That maybe is long if you if you feel as if it's disconnected. Well, whatever, because at least it was maybe better than the previous thing, or at least it felt like the track was building up to it to the point where they can get away with doing whatever. But this sort of did a similar thing. It has another breakdown where it boils down to the bass, kind of the same structure as, as Cream and Chrome. Um, and then the guitar steps in, gradually overlapping each other, phrase by phrase, and then we even have those little drum inserts, which all be, but they were kind of silly. I don't think this was the best transition, but I was happy where I landed. The final bash where the drums come in here in full form. Yeah, this is when the drums were, were probably at their best on the album. Um, because previously in this in this track, just looking at this track, it was very even, just one end, two end. Which is why those those inserts, you know, where it boils down to just the drums sounded so silly to me. But here, at least it's it's fully it's full flushed with the rest of with everything else. The electric guitar, though, I think is what really makes that outro solid, because as it gets brought in for that transitionary piece, or maybe an A-prime, B-prime kind of an idea going on, there's a whine to it that really gives it a lot of character, that as it builds up, it, it feels like the it's comping the bass, or the bass is comping it, mm -hmm. even though neither are really matching up. When the actual rhythm and percussion comes in and starts muddying everything up, what happens directly afterwards feels like, all right, now we're seeing the true character of this guitar. We're seeing it fully fleshed out because the drum's supporting it. The bass is supporting it. Everything is supporting that guitar. Well, and I think it gave a strength to the end of the track that I, I didn't really want the entire track. I'm glad that it moved to this. It gave, it gave a definition to the rest of the song that was fulfilled when you heard the outro and kind of got this... this very intricate drum work that I really loved. Yeah, I, I can nitpick about like little transitions as much as I want, but I'm just happy there are transitions. Yes. You know, I'm happy that this this is just a more a, a more diverse track, I think. Um, and yeah, it kind of ends, interestingly enough, with the same little lone drum insert that I kind of criticized. <laughs> well, it's just like, well, and, to, and it's done. Yeah, <laughs> it, it kind of just halts suddenly. Yeah, and we don't the, actually get the radio here. And then from there we go to Nightclub Amnesia, which definitely sounds like a club track in the beginning. It starts out with that kind of very... It's it's not just Nightclub, it's the scratching nature of, of what's being played that feels like it, uh, an actual DJ is doing. Sure. It should also be said this is the third single uh, that was released on this album. Abrasive was the second, Cream and Chrome was the first. And then what I like about this, this club intro is that once the guitar comes in, it has a very disjointed feel. It's, it's like, broken. It's like either the guitar is broken or the audio hookup for the guitar is broken. It cuts in and cuts out. I it's interpreted that the guitar was just drunk. <laughs> Drunk, drunk sure. off its behind. Considering, you know, everything has been so filled with characters so far, I don't think that's a far, long way to go, especially it for a, a, little a, night, a nightclub track. It's like, yeah, this is the, the, this is the last DJ on in the night, and he's had, he's had a few too many. And <laughs> that's why I still want to go with the DJ idea, because it feels like the, the guitar is being clipped, that it is actually being sliced in. Yeah. That someone is just changing a knob or, or raising something up and down, up and down, letting it show off every once in a while. 
I really enjoy it. That's the inter- that's the interesting rhythms that I really want to see more of uh, from Ratatat in general. And the way it works with the percussion, the percussion remaining steady, but having both a, a, a disc jockey scratch and this weird guitar going off shows just the retexturization of the rhythm, of the percussion line. Yeah. That's just so much fun as it goes along. It really is a nice jam. It's very, very, very uneven, very off-centered. And it gives the the track a character again, like we've gotten in so many other tracks where it comes and goes, but you feel like, you feel like you're in the room with that DJ mixing this track, and it kind of builds out another and different aesthetic. And what I like about this album so far is even if the tracks don't always hold up per se, the aesthetics are pretty strong from track to track you're getting a strong sense of a ambiance if not a direct setting yeah and even that other uh, synth effect it's still more the left ear deeper range um with all of those like stuttered triplets you know it comes across it i think that's the dynamic you were talking about yeah. specifically between that and the the very drunk guitar um and it's not to say that this is like when i say the they're stuttered well they work well together but of course there's a very steady rhythm here they even bring in clapping it's got all the elements of a nightclub track it's just they do a little bit more with it it's actually a very funky track um i always kind of associated ratatat with a little bit of a funk edge um this time they're just a little bit more on the nose with it so i, I gotta give this this track some credit for i think winning me over after after a, a track a few track lull um it just seemed like a more substantial product we even get another great transition here where it goes into this like p- grand piano section with these very sparse chords it sounds very sweeping again uh, and then finally back into the bass solo. So, uh, and this this was probably one of the better bass solos in the album, I have to say. That interlude also kind of gave it. It went from feeling like a dank kind of club feel to this kind of almost hopeful sweep, like you said, sweeping before mm-hmm. kind of feel that added air to this song that wasn't really there. You felt a little yeah. claustrophobic earlier in the song, and this kind of bre- brings some breath into it. And as this bass riff really gets fleshed out and and completed. You get a, an alternating high, lighter guitar work and heavy, lower guitar work that's sort of competing, but at the same time, even the heavy is brightening up what's going on, playing yeah. off of the bass itself, that these these new lines and the touches that they're putting on these new lines really does a lot to open up everything, to really clear the smoke from the room. But this is where I'm going to criticize this track. For as much as I uh-oh, love it, oh, here it comes. Having a, a, a six-minute track, the second half of it, you kind of lose what the first was doing. The, a lot of the scratching and, and the distortion is gone, and you start struggling to remember that scratching, to remember that distortion. It became still the through line of the rhythm, a solid piece, but at the same time, it could have, in my opinion, worked as two separate tracks. Uh, that's definitely a higher order critique, and I give you credit for it in terms of thinking in the broad here. That said, this track was just a little bit more enjoyable to me than a lot of the other tracks on this album, and even a lot of the other tracks with the same form. Now, I can't say it beats Cream on Chrome. We still haven't beaten that. That, that, That's that's set a very high bar for this. But this is really close. I would love, I love where it took me. I do enjoy where it took me, but I don't feel like it, it, it could have done it in separate pieces as well as one piece. But it's I do that emphasize argument I would make. I do emphasize that it's 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 one of the best of its type, and yes. by that I mean the the over, the superstructure of the track. You know, Cream and Chrome pretty much set the precedent for this type of product, where you have your A section, you have your B section, you go into a transition, and then really like a final closing jam that may seem a little bit disconnected and it was perhaps done best there i don't think it was done terribly well in pricks of brightness i think it was done better here 
Um, probably a close second for me, I think, uh, Nightclub Amnesia. The, well, the, the outro was just, it even reminded me of a couple of other uh, artists who were like really big in the alt-rock scene, um, but also dabbled in electronica, and that was uh, St- Stephen Malkmus. You probably know sure, him from course, Pavement. Yeah. Of course, um, Or Steve Malkmus and the Jicks. I mean, it, he did a lot of this stuff, and it, sure. it, it, it seemed to be an influence almost, because after all, he was doing that stuff in the 90s, and it, it rung back to that lightheartedness. Yeah, I would agree. And we go from that full, just finale type piece to Cold Fingers. Track 9. And this one starts more muddied, more static than we got before. I almost felt like it was swampy. But it still had a baseline groove that kind of carried the intro through that I really liked. It also it, felt very similar to the previous uh, piece in a way, mm-hmm. as if we had like we they haven't really connected. moved very far. Yeah. yeah, the guitar did that, but the guitar still had its own funk flair that was going on there. I agree with that. Keeping mm-hmm. its identity as a separate piece, this mute, the way they built up the, I guess pieces of flair, the the lines of flair, and the reintegration of it was 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 awesome but what i did notice as the track went along that there was just solid picking here that i don't think i really expected up until now and variation of these guitars that was its most identifiable features well the guitar work was very interesting here i really liked how it was a bit different from what we had gotten before it did feel like it was full of a little more flair though more classic guitar solo and that's where i would bring up the picking to me it's all it's all chords it's all chords i mean i i mean to pick apart the picking it almost seems (laughs) a little bit silly but considering that like everything is just so so refined and so regular with ratatat but in terms of the style here in terms of just the overall feel that i get from this piece it, it seems to be referencing certain things and maybe certain guitar styles that you might associate with things back farther into classic rock let's say uh there's something in the chords here in the leading chord right in the middle of phrases that i absolutely adored i love the way they return right back to the phrase because there's like a phrase a and then a phrase b and sort of in the middle of these phrases there's always just this one little chord change the little leading chord that brings us right back in and i love the little tension that is introduced here it was a very sexy move for the piece it's not even the same chord it it's it's different. There's different well, ideas as they go along. There's 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 variants on that. Well, it can fool you because they don't because the, because of the phrase A and phrase B, they don't yeah. always do it at the end of phrase B. I think they do it at the end of phrase A. Again, that, that's <laughs> you'd have to really be following this thing to pick up on that. But it's it's still it's a it's a noted something I had to note. <laughs> there is one other thing. This is a, a two minute track, and I have to compliment it on its length. It was not concise, that it, and it, 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 not that it was just concise. I felt like. A different artist might have made this a three-minute, four-minute song, and that might have hurt it in the overall. Being short, not just being concise, but moving rapidly and having the funk really set the the pacing of the track itself, the speed of itself, made it very, very enjoyable because mm-hmm. it was it was sort of... It was kind of sugary, it was kind of sweet, it was kind of like a nice burst of taste in your mouth as you're going along, but it wasn't overpowering for its length. Yeah, and then the last thing I'll say about it is this is something that actually felt like it could have been off of classics, not to make the direct comparison, but of course I have that that album, you know, in my head very clearly, and this, uh, you know, so what? I love classics. Right, (laughs) exactly. And Ergo, I mean, the track. It's not foreign for us to compare current albums by an artist to previous albums by an artist. Next, we go to Supreme, track 10, which is another slower track. It's in the vein of Magnifique. 
And I like I like this because the floating groove that this kind of track portrays is almost heavenly or like in the clouds and kind it's of slower uplifting. Too. Much slower. Mm -hmm. uh, we even have a few false starts here in the very beginning. Uh, these giant like string sweeps, you know, that that you, know, you get one, you get two, you get three, and then it's like ah, oh, now we're in the groove, and it's just so slow. Again, so blissful, reminiscent of Magnifique or Drift or of the whole the the fifties stuff. Very airy, full of reverb, and you know. All that wonderful stuff. But having just higher chords against a, a, a deep bass a, and a deeper guitar doesn't do a lot besides just create a, a, a contrast. This contrast doesn't evolve any way mm. too dramatically. It stays in dreamland for the duration of the song, and this dreamland just is a little bit too calming for me. I think it's maybe only because we feel like we got it before, in in Drift especially, or it seems to be like a fusion of Drift and Magnifique, um, and this seems to be expanding on that idea, but it doesn't expand too far. It, it, I would say it more accentuates the idea rather than expand on it, because it still seems just as concise, and I have many of the same positive to say about it, but maybe even a little, a little better here, a little more... A little more superior. I felt that um, the chords here just—they—they they rang true of like that old school 1950s stuff. Absolutely loved that. And I also loved the little subtle additives here. The the guitar bends just as I did back in Drift, back in Magnifique, and again that big stupid happy grin on my face even seems bigger, stupider, and happier. Well, I think it also is a clearer emotion in this track. I get more of a sense of love in this track. It, it reminiscent actually of a very specific reference point. In all of the tracks that played behind Ramona and Scott in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, these kind of light, airy, you're in love tracks. Yeah. And it's reminiscent of that. It has that character. And even later in the track, it gets quirkier by actually having bird sounds. But to your point, John, I do believe that this track, it does come across as a little cliche, and maybe mm -hmm. for the exact reasons that, that Matt just said. Yeah. With the birds, I mean, come on. Birds chirping, like you're yeah. floating in the clouds on love, like, yeah. Well, we're going with the, the title of Supreme. The way it does add some flair and build, it's sort of like seeing something big starting from a small point. Sort of, uh, if I'm going to make another video game reference here, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, when you see one of those first big, beautiful, monstrous beings, it starts a little bit tight and then spreads out. You don't really get a sense of scale, and that's what's going on here. Mm. You're getting a sense of scale for what's going on, but it takes three minutes to get this sense, and it sort of loses me along the way, and that's that's the problem I'm facing here. Well, unless you associate this as a kind of like love at first sight, and I, I wouldn't have thought love at first sight for those giant colossus, <laughs> colossies. But when you look at them, I mean, some of them feel like works of art, and that's what the kind of vibe I'm getting And the here. game was also considered a work of art sure. for the time. Absolutely. Um, it, I called it essentially a chillax to the max kind of a track. Like, that's essentially the end goal of this song, is for you to feel like you're on a cloud and chill out. And of course, again, at the end, we get another radio outro. And at this point... I don't dislike them per se. It's just like, okay, here's another one. Well, I haven't been able to find like an instance in which I was just like completely blown away by the purpose they served as right. a transition. Though curiously, this transition for the next track, Rome, actually occurs at the beginning of the of the piece, Rome. Right. It wasn't technically an outro. It's more the intro, but you don't notice that, of course. It's and hard you're just to like tell at that to point. It yeah. And you're kind of expecting it to be the tail end of a song. So when I actually went back to Rome and listened to it by itself, because up front, this might be my favorite song on the album, uh, favorite track on the album, excuse me. I did not realize that the radio, that the tape deck was 
the beginning. Well, and also in this track, the intro has that ripping tape sound like something got cut. Mm-hmm. And then it goes right into this acoustic guitar intro. Another natural kind of feeling song, at least from the get-go, where you get this kind of acoustic guitar sense. I didn't pick up on it as being acoustic. I, I, I'd be careful rhythm. with that. But who or it was a it's, rhythm it's guitar. It's more of like, there, were, there seemed to be two guitars present, and they were just like dueling throughout the first section of this. And, and there was it was three. almost... No, no, there was three. Well, the there rhythm were. guitar was a good background piece, and that's what we introduced with. But when the first talking electric... And then the second talking electric start actually having the conversation. Yeah, at that point, it was almost... You can't focus on anything but the two of them. It was almost like a fugue, you know, like an old-fashioned, just Baroque fugue um, that that Bach would write. It it sounds as if there were just, like, two two, uh, simultaneous melodies, you know, and that's the idea behind the fugue, because, of course, you don't really take your your focus off of one. The the art is in about doing both of them simultaneously. It's not the same call and response that you'd have in other cases. There's not this secondary instrument that takes back seat for for various intervals instead they just both simultaneously important although the only thing i'm not entirely sure of is that it could be around they're both i noticed an octave apart um one a little bit higher register one a little bit lower and then i it may very well be the same melody just offset in a round to sound as if they are are kind of like independent in either, they're still independent. In either case, I would say it's it's almost like chipmunks, two chipmunks going at it with one another. You definitely hear the two different voices going on, and this is actually a compliment. Stay with me. Oh, but it, it just feels so natural having the two different noises playing off one another that when the beat actually comes in, when the rhythm actually comes in and really starts to build, I'm thoroughly in love with this track. Mm-hmm. It then just keeps going. It keeps evolving. And that's the best part of this. Well, what I like when it evolves is it kind of almost is this fusion of the techie sounds you've been getting before with the lighter sounds of the title track and some of the other slower songs. It kind of melds them together. And right. if, even the way the two pieces just combine, merge to like find it the unison, you know, that was a very graceful transition in itself. Finally going into this whole synth section and then finally into something a little bit more guitar driven but very clean, almost uh I mean you compared it to like the picture a guitar solo in Weezer or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, it, was, it had of, that kind of very Weezer-esque kind of clean sound. When it finally unifies and goes into that 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 fall off into the very heavy rhythm then plus bass section the bass does a great job of actually repeating that duality with the guitar it's a it's another take and it's a different melody different sort of a rhythm style is the transition you're speaking of or the closing bash the closing bash that closing bash having the bass taking over one of the roles puts the whole thing in a whole new light for me that's why i'm in love with this because while we're getting a very a and b sort of sectional nature to this piece it seems to have the most unifying idea since we got cream on chrome yeah and sure it's got like that anthemic quality that you'd expect in the final bash and and again using the same format that we've gotten several times now i'd say this is definitely the upper echelon of this particular format sure i don't know whether it's uh, over cream on chrome yet though that that may be a personal preference but but i like it so <laughs> let's go to track 12 prime time this one starts also kind of... So here they're starting to blend their sounds a little more, I feel, because this one also has a groove, but it's more... It's lighter than the other heavy groove tracks. It's the same sort of funkish idea we've gotten previously with the low-end bass and the high-end guitar. The piano adds some some texture, but in the long run, even though it's only a two-minute track, it's another one of those short, short guys, it feels a little stagnant. 
This is, I'm really critiquing, it does seem to draw for a long time. Yeah, I didn't really pick up on much of a personality here, except a little bit of the rehash. The bass sounds very islandy. Um, probably my favorite part about this track, though, was the bass. And then the guitarists step over, step in here, trading off, uh, as they've done. I'm just, I'm not really getting too much, too much character within this. It's definitely well done, but... There's nothing at all new it, about this idea. It did feel more hollow than previous tracks in the sense that there wasn't that strong character or sense of soul that we'd gotten from the instruments, even the instruments sounding like but a it's voice. It's almost like they're poking fun at the hollowness. And it almost it, it's not a fade-out, necessarily, right. but there is a moment here where they do that thing where they, they like turn off the gain or something and they make it sound really, really bright, which almost gives the effect of it just like lifting off. Yeah, you get that. I have to go back to my home planet now. <laughs> and it's, it's just, just like it's gradually fading away. Almost into like a crappier speaker, like a transistor radio. That's the way it sounds at the tail end. Too so bright and so tinny. It's it's like without substance. And it did also have a very bizarre outro. I mean, I don't want to skip to the end of the song. There's other stuff I want to talk about. Oh, that's what I did. <laughs> I mean, that's true. And it's usually my job to skip to the end. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about right the, now. The, the outro did seem very odd, though, that that kind of muffled transistor radio ness. It just didn't fit the rest of the track. Even though they've done stuff like that before and alluded to it with those transitions, I just, eh, I didn't. I, I think it kind of ruined the track that was otherwise kind of fusing their sounds fairly well like the previous track. I feel like it just... This track did feel a little kind of, here you go, here's a thing. Like, mm. it didn't have the same character two previous tracks really did. Maybe it was just a segue for that, I have to go, my home planet needs me, so they could have the I will return from where I'm taking off from, utilizing the little brightness shift. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Textual theories. Speaking of returning. I should write a textbook called Textual Theories. Track 13, I will return, is actually a cover of Springwater. 1971 song, I Will Return. Return. Bingo. Um, The thing about this song, though, as it starts, is something we kind of guffawed about recently, is that this also feels very conclusionary. It feels like a wrap-up, and it's one of those kind of songs. So it makes sense to use it for the the second-to-last song before our proper outro song. And I just... I don't know. It felt a little predictable. It's got that I'm wandering on kind of feel. At least I didn't really feel off the mark when I was listening to this track for the first time, not knowing that it was a cover. And I was like, hmm, I'm picking up on a lot of classic rock references. Almost seems a little Floydian at times. Right. But, oh, it's Springwater. (laughs) Now we know. And, uh, I don't know, I I dug the slow jam, to be honest. I wasn't as down on this track as some others. I think it actually had more substance than some of the other slow jams. I think just as a conclusionary track, I was a little bummed that it was predictable. Beyond that, I think it was still a good track. And it was a a great cover. The cover itself could stand alone because they played it with strings. Honestly, it had a very uh, America the Beautiful kind of vibe. Yeah. And that whole patriotic sort of idea, sort of on the prairie and name of midwestern state <laughs> looking out over the land and everything welcome to like beautiful that. nebraska <laughs> <laughs> as the country guitarist starts walking away except this isn't a country guitarist this has got a little more technology involved with it it's sort of the 21st century take on it but that's the thing with ratata no matter how much electronica influence they're clearly you know uh, built off of they're, they they've got their other influences and they'll never stray too far from rock it seems which is why I actually found Rocktronica fairly appropriate. I think Stupid it's actually names, a nice all fusion. Considered, yeah. yeah, fusion genre names go. Uh, it's not the worst I think we've ever heard, yeah. truthfully. And this is probably one of the better examples of it here and, and what they're all about. 
And then we get track 14, outro. Outro. So it's and a, it is. It's, it's, it's a return yeah. to what they did in the intro. It's got that classical rock kind of piano and guitar sound. More radio dial stuff. And then the, the, it wraps up with a reel-to-reel wrapping up. Literally running out of tape. Little critique, and this is apart from the obvious critique, which is the obviousness of, of course, the intro kind of equating to the outro and it not having very much maybe to do with the rest of the album. Um, kind of not unlike all the other intros and outros to individual tracks, which is the radio thing, but uh, it's that when you bring in that little Mozartian effect, and it's sounding very classical here, it actually started to sound more like an exposition here than anything else. I think it was kind of pigeonholed into being an outro. They really sort of rushed this. It sounded as if it was going to usher in something new, and then, like, just on a dime, they decide to pivot backwards. and made like, ah, da, 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 and we're done. Right. And it was, I don't know, it was very strange at that point. The, the, the intro was better done than the outro, in my opinion, using that same sound effect. Sure. I mean, also, it's kind of just solidifying this thing we've been alluding to of something playing on a radio or an old reel-to-reel or, or cassette, and it, it has that kind of tape-snapping, finishing sound. Well, it's, and it's also the idea of the mystique that maybe I had as of the intro. It was like, ah, I am starting an album. This is very interesting. Whoa, what is that effect? Didn't expect that from Reddit And as of the outro, you know, you know their shticks by now. Yeah, because the whole track is a stru- the album as a structure has been very shticky, kind of. Shticky. The outros are also about half the length of the introduction. I mean, it's not like they dragged it on. No, no. Yeah, for sure not. Um, All right, I guess we might as well go into our wrap-up now. Um, I don't know about this album. I mean, from an aesthetic point of view, and I've actually used that word more in this album than I've used in recent weeks, this idea of aesthetics and building these scenes, these kind of... (laughs) Places. Places, essentially. Yeah. I mean, also, I struggle often, and it's no secret, when I don't have lyrics, I have trouble putting together a story, unless you're Boards of Canada, and then you're throwing scenes at me in my face. Um, So, you know, I felt at a loss emotionally through this record, which I'll say was a big kind of detractor for me. Well, there were moments of, aha, or this is interesting. I never felt, this is sad, this is happy. Well, I'll only interrupt your monologue to say, what did you feel from Classics? I mean, about the same. I felt it kind of just grooved. Yeah, okay. And it's the f- I'm just getting on the same page. Right. And so it's the fault of, um, I think, club music sometimes on a whole is sometimes you can be left emotionless. That said, I mean, bands like Daft Punk obviously take you through these wide emotions through their work. And I'm not saying that Ratatat doesn't. I just feel like with this album, there's never this moment where... Except for a couple of the lighter tracks where I went, oh, this feels like I'm in love or I'm floating on a cloud. But those are all more settings than emotions. And that kind of left kind of a hole in the record for me. I knew where I was. I knew when I was. But I didn't quite know what I was. Uh, wow, I like that. That yeah. was nice. So, no, that, I don't know what that means yet. <laughs> what I, mean, I call bull. <laughs> what I mean is I got a strong sense of setting. I got a strong sense of style, but I didn't get a strong sense of emotion. I didn't know what to feel, per se, which not is it's not always a bad thing, that kind of ambiguity, but I felt like I was kind of towards the end of the album grasping at stuff, just trying to find stuff, and things have to be beyond stuff. Um, that said, there's no lack of skill for this band. I mean, they're talented. They haven't, they haven't, while some songs feel like they've evolved their sound a bit as a whole, it's Ratatat. More or less what you expect from Ratatat, plus a few surprises. Um, I think as far as Electronica albums we've done this year, especially, it's not as influential or, or game changing. Game changing. Yeah. 
Um, but it's not it's not perfectly average either. It's a little more than that. I just don't know, as, especially compared to stuff in its own genre, this leans more towards the indie rock structure with that lyric feeling instrument sound. So I feel like it holds itself back a little bit. It doesn't break out like some of those other bands do and just do crazy stuff. And when they hinted at that crazy stuff, they then pulled back a bit. And we mentioned in many tracks, oh, this is really interesting and that was really interesting. And then it kind of just went into stuff, other stuff we'd heard before. We're getting an A prime afterwards. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I think this album falls for me right below the fours. I feel like they're, they're a good band. But I feel like this was just a solid good album. It's not average. It's it's almost above average. So for me, I give it a 3.8. I like it. I think it's good. I groove to it. I don't know that I would go back to it. I might be more inclined to go back to classics just because it's familiar. More familiar because I know it better. Which means, well, let's see, was that a 2006 album? Okay, no, so I nine years <laughs> down the road, maybe you'll be at the same familiarity right. with Magnifique. I want to hone in on the what and the ambiguity because I think that probably sums up this album and to some extent this style of music in a lot of ways. I don't think there's supposed to be an emotional connection to a lot of this. I don't think there is supposed to be ambiguity on the other side, though. I think this is does a great job of being scenes, of being locations. A being the where and the when, and that is one of its best parts. Having such a concrete idea and sort of backbone to a, a location means that when I was listening to this in the car, it was perfect for driving. But it wasn't perfect for you know going fast all the time. It wasn't perfect for cruising all the time. Sometimes little parts felt like being stuck in red lights. But besides that, I mean, it filled the role of being radio music for me. And that's one of the best compliments I can get because vegging out to this and really going to a blank pace with your uh, place with your mind is kind of like how I drive. Not that I'm, you know, ignoring the road or anything like that, but being on the road and just having mile after mile after mile of the same thing going down a turnpike or something like that, it's sort of numbing. This here puts it in a great light for me. It puts it in the framework of just being a continuation. And that's what a lot of these songs just did a great job of being a continuation. Even my critiques, I'm going back to this in, in contrast to what Matt said. I'm going back to this because this is great ambient background kind of music. It's, it, it doesn't infringe upon what's going on. But that said, I mean, it's just not infringing. That's the contrast. Can you rate something so very high because it's not driven to an emotion or to a feeling or to a purpose? It's just trying to support you? Well, in this case, you I think You want to be infringed upon. Uh, sometimes you do, yeah. and that's what keeps it outside of the plus four range. One day someone will infringe upon you. <laughs> there you go. So, I'm going to be rating it higher than Matt. This is a solid four through and through. It does a great job of creating Verona, if we're talking about setting. It's a great job of our setting of Verona, going back to classic Shakespeare. It is the place, but there's just none of the you know actual characters involved, and that's what's keeping it from being you know upper echelon right here. Um, all right. When you're looking at Ratatat, I think no one can argue that this band has an identity. I think that's kind of what made them stand out from the batch. And it's a strange identity that they have. This kind of like 
very steady, very even, uh, relaxed approach to music. There's, like the fact that I said early on here, there's not a lot of confrontation. And yeah, maybe that, that amounts to not being infringed upon. If you're not being confronted, you're not being infringed upon. Well, all right, this isn't square pusher. It's, it's something very, very different. Okay. In, in a way, that's kind of... That kind of is what makes them unique. People can just float along with Ratatat and yet kind of also groove along at the same time. And that's weird because we see grooving as this thing where we always have to be moving. Not necessarily. You could enjoy it in a car and it actually does make great background music. This is probably one of those instances, and this is not an insult to them, where I could say, Ratatat, I would just love to have them on in the background during, you know, a lot of things. Certainly during... In intensive listen, though, you know, when you're really just focused on your headphones, I, I see the flaws, and I kind of saw it from even back in classic. I, I knew, like, all right, this is great stuff, but I even had, I, I picked and choose around that album. You know, I loved Lex, I loved Gettysburg, I loved certain tracks, and then others, you know, I just kind of floated along with. And floating is not bad. Uh, as to where that sits in the grand scheme of things, I definitely think this album did some new things. I think we got that earlier on. I think Matt put that very well to say this is Ratatat with a few little differences, a few little pluses. Um, when you say it like that, it sounds like you're mocking me. Maybe. <laughs> Fair point. Continue. Not, not what I'm doing. Alright. It's... I'm, and probably with all the mockery to be had, I'm going to end up agreeing with you. I think this is just a solid 3.8. I, I can't get quite as close to the 4, maybe, just because I know that, yeah, it's not, it's not rattling my brain up every every few seconds. <laughs> Maybe that's not what people go to, to music for, though, but I, I, I like to have not the same structure all the time. I, I would like them to really shuffle up their format and maybe really think about how these sections are, mar are, are married together. And uh, the theme, as it were, the radio thing, is just a little bit too loose for me. It's, it's not tight enough to, to really push it to the fore. 3.84 for my album of the week. All right. Um, from here, I think we can talk a little bit about something Steve hinted on earlier about how this album, some of one of its possible greatest flaws, flaws rather, feeling this kind of club kind of place this this band exists in this kind of dance club kind of environment can possibly hurt a record because it can be repetitive. Well, we had it's expected of dance music. Sure, and we had this discussion actually way back in episode eighty nine, as I recall, uh, Pharrell Williams' album Girl, which we initially noted, well, clearly this is going to be meant more for the club setting. And we even, I mean, not that every single piece of music he's done is is, is toward that, but right. that album especially was. Um, we actually had to have a whole discussion following it on, on dance music specifically. And this is more just for a club, though, because I believe when you're dancing to something, it, it, it requires it to be a little bit more regular. But no one said Ratatat, for instance, had to be dance music. Club, sure. Or something meant for the party scene, then you kind of get to stretch it a little bit because you're not necessarily expecting people to dance, but you want to at least maybe give them the option. How far can you really go with that though, and breaching the the, the wall over into the critics' territory? Because critics, let's face it, really want the more complex things. They want things that stretch you out of your rhythm comfort zone. But if you do that, then all of a sudden you lose the dance demographic. Simply put, is it possible? Well, one of the biggest problems when you're in that sort of, an, of a framework of making music is that you have to straddle the line between catchy and uplifting and, and, and blood pumping and ambient. It's, it's that sort of an area. You have to be able to both be background music and forefront music. 
That's just a hard area to be in. And then maybe even linking that to the broader question, the question that we're perhaps constantly following on this podcast is the uh, how digestible your piece of music is. And like people at least need to follow it and they at least need to buy it. They at least need to consider it music, you know. But then again, you also want to be at the cutting edge of that of that scene. Um, and it's really difficult to do that without kind of falling off the precipice. Now, never in my life would I have thought I would rate a, a Square Pusher album better than a Ratatat album. <laughs> but when you're looking at it through the, 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 the critical lens, you start to enter into these questions. And it's just like, well, maybe I am looking really more for the next big thing. Still, comfort music, can it be rated on the same, on the same uh, scale? Well, uh, some of the other things that we talked about today, which I believe Matt brought up multiple times, was feeling like there could be lyrics on top of this. And that's another thing. Because of the lack of focus on any sort of concrete message, it's hard to get critical in the same sort of light. When, When there's nothing to be sung about, when there's no words, when there's no actual storytelling content, having a this straddling line of ambient versus active music, you can't rate it that way. Because if it's supposed to be taken, in some cases, as the music someone's listening to when they're chatting up their friends or uh, a potential, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, dating kind of a situation, or talking to a bartender, you don't want something that's intruding upon their conversation, their story. Absolutely. And when you want something that can actually take a step back... Well, it's supposed to be unchallenging. Going back to last week's discussion, it's not supposed to challenge what people are thinking at any given time. And that means, well, it's in many ways not pushing music forward. Well, also, though, this goes back to the word I've said way too much this episode already, ambiance. This this idea of it's creating this scene, and beyond the scene that they're creating within the album, it is creating this club feel, this idea of background music that you can talk through, but still kind of enhances the situation you're in. I mean, I know for a fact, when I listened to Ratatat in the earlier years, it was often in the background somewhere. I was at a friend's place, or I was doing some work on my computer, and it was playing in the background. And... That's when I noticed it the most. So it kind of enhanced that listen due to the type of music it was. It's also the fact that as an album production, the every line, every chord is chosen beforehand and played and you make a solid piece. But in many club situations, the truly inventive and inspiring DJs, the ones that really get my blood pumping when I'm listening to this sort of music, are on the fly remixing and introducing new elements and playing off of what may have been a steady backbeat in some of in, in these tracks like what gets thrown into and on top of what's going on here can truly be the lyrics the addition the conversation that this music would promote well that's why you got to go back to the question i mean just call a spade a spade here you can't have your cake and eat it too i know just through like three expressions out there that sound meaningless is like outside of of the context but think about (laughs) it you to have your cake and eat it too says oh i want to be challenged i i want the music to do something extremely radical right but then on the side oh i just I want, I want it to fit the mood, and I want people to... I want everyone around me to like it at the same time, and I want to be able to groove to... You're probably not going to be able to have that. 
But this goes back to something I'm frequently complimenting within the pop music that we've done, and that's to say, if you have a framework, and that is the, the, the framework you have, the job of a composer, and sometimes the challenge of a composer, is to work within that framework and stretch the capabilities of that framework. Right. And that, I believe, the Ratatat does pretty well. But I do believe it is possible to push it forward. For instance, I've said this a lot with like a lot of funk music I'll listen to. Granted, of course, it's really great on the dance floor scene, but it can be extremely intricate. And you can find yourself commenting on little things, the various groupings of rhythms here and there, despite the fact that you have the big ticker, the constant tempo that's not going to change. And it's not going to throw off people's footing while they're dancing. But within that, you could have any number of other things. The strange thing about, about Ratatat, uh, just to bring it back to them, not to put them in the spotlight, but they are the feature today, is that, of course, they kind of made this style off of being somewhat reserved and being in the background. And then they take their time, and their groupings just tend to be a little bit sparser. They're not as as intricate, perhaps, as some other artists, you know, out there. Like Square Pusher, let's face it, he doesn't really expect his music to be danced to. No. I would highly doubt that. But certain other artists we've listened to, I think maybe even Flying Lotus, it's possible, believe it or not. And that, that's, a, that's saying something. <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite albums is the live album Alive by Daft Punk, which was a remix album. Well, it was based on a live show they did. It's an actual recording from cover, cover to cover of a live concert they did. And it was, it was everything I was, I'm kind of looking for in this discussion. It is a danceable album as a whole. It is challenging because not only are we getting... Some of the best Daft Punk, which is, in my opinion, some of the best electronica ever. On top of that, we're also getting the challenge of seeing the new renditions of these different pieces as they're putting two songs that, yeah, had the same time signature, but that was like the only thing in common with them at that point. Mm -hmm. It was just a masterpiece for me. But keep in mind, at this point, it's it's, it's compilation in the fact that it's the greatest hits of a lot of their stuff, and they're playing with it and changing it. But ultimately, it's not new recordings. It's not a new album. It's still an album. But they're playing with it and changing it, so it's different from the original recordings. And right now, with, with Ratatat, we're talking about the original recordings. Now, could they do a remix live album with this album and do some interesting and intricate stuff with it? Absolutely. And I'd actually be interested to hear that. Um, whereas with Daft Punk, I mean, their music is pretty flexible, both recorded and live. They do a lot of different stuff with both. But I would even I would even apply the same critique a little bit to Daft Punk. You find that arising uh, back in the album we reviewed, Random Access Memories, in episode 49. I, I, I found myself criticizing it at moments for being a little bit safe. Actually, probably one of my... Some of my favorite tracks were the ones that featured Pharrell Williams, so that says something about that artist. But that's just because he's got the falsetto, and that adds another layer that I feel like really livens up the dance floor. Um, But then, you know, Daft Punk is known to have their grooves. If you go back and listen to Discovery, listen to Homework, some of the stuff is is extremely repetitive. You know, you can enjoy it in a certain setting, but I it's given uh, you know more maturity. I'm not sure it's it's the same active listening experience. I I believe it was intended to be in the background and sure. for Daft Punk to stay with the robot helmets on and <laughs> behind their DJ booth and just sort of run the show. That's it. And that's why I love the album Alive because with Around the World, I mean, Around the World is one of their most repetitive songs. And right, honestly, and one of their first not, big hits too. Yeah. Not one of my favorites, but when it gets reintegrated with other familiar pieces to make something that was truly different, 
That's what I loved about it. Yeah. They took the repetitiveness and flipped it back and forth, back and forth. That's sort of like what Ratatat did here. They had A's and B's, and it's almost set up to be remixed in a lot of ways. But that makes me a little more sympathetic to it, because then you consider, you take take Around the World, and do you think this this that this album uh, can compete with that, or that can compete with this? Frankly, I think this album's a lot better than that. Yeah, the earlier Daft Punk stuff also was way more repetitive than the current stuff. I yeah. mean, the album we reviewed that you just mentioned, they dabbled with whole genres that were unrelated to stuff they had done before. But my point is, all that means is that one of the same things that governed our ratings is that, well, familiarity is what really brought us close to classics, True. you know? Even the fact that they called that album classic. Classics, Maybe yeah. they were they were intentionally ex they were expecting this that would that nine years later people would just be like ah that album was a classic. Yeah, sure. Their, yeah, their fifth studio well, release it was a, is harkening back it was a to their suspicious second. title. Okay, so the <laughs> <laughs> point is familiarity is key. Familiarity is everything when it comes to to, to dance music or or nightclub scene stuff. Then yeah. around the world could have been the crappiest song ever, but given the what decade plus now or more than that really yeah. probably closer to 20 late late 90s right yeah, yeah. i think so yeah, yeah. close to two decades yeah close because two decades because the, the early aughts for them was when um um oh, what was the song they did the animated music video to um they didn't do it for harder better faster no stronger. it was it was that same album though but now i'm blanking on the track uh, oh one more time yeah which oh, is yeah. their big mainstream pop hit one they more had time. a few big mainstream pop hits though, like uh, the, "Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger" was another one. That one came after though. That was wrong. Yeah, yeah one more time after. was from the same album. It was the first single off that album, and I specifically remember that one for the music video. This cute kind of '70s anime style music video. Yeah. But but that was another song that was kind of mostly just a pop structure, and they just kind of played with it a little bit, but they didn't do anything this revolutionary. Is why I go back to if if familiarity is key, then that that's the thing that's really going to govern how how. How people on a, on a nightclub setting years and years down the road, and then that song comes on, and all you have to do is hear the first few bars of it. All of a sudden, people are cheering, yeah. and they're ready. They're ready to get on the dance floor. That's the one that's going to get everybody up, no matter how repetitive the song is. Sure. But going back to the original question, how do you rate that? Since it's supposed to be so instantly recognizable and and so instantly heart pounding, getting you moving, and everything like that, you just can't keep it in the same sort of you know, social structure or rating structure as something like Boards of Canada. How is it? Miles Harvest. Point is that that's the one thing that every critic in the world is horrible at. Yeah. No critic can predict what will become popular. Yeah, maybe we're, they can. We're no maybe better. they can say absolutely. They can, maybe they can say like you know, given years of experience and years of listening to music, whatever the hell that rump, means. Rump, 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 exactly. And all they can say is, well, maybe this is a little bit. Superior. This this has more to it. Yes, yeah. it has more substance. Will the world care? No, the world just will complete. That'll just go completely over their heads. Yeah, and they're gonna latch on to whatever they're gonna latch on to. Despite whether you said this doesn't contribute anything to society, and all of a sudden that is the hit that's playing for the next decade, the anthem for the decade, and the critic has to eat his foot. Right. I mean, you got to think when pe when critics looked at Heya by Outkast. Oh my god. They probably <laughs> looked at that song and went, well this is nothing new, who cares? But meanwhile it was one of the biggest songs for years. That thing was everywhere. Yeah. And and it's just, but it's this idea that a song like that and like this stuff we're talking about that can be very repetitive or predictable, sometimes it's almost impossible to predict the popularity of that stuff. But even in our own case, we loved, loved Tomorrow's Harvest, or at least two of us really loved it and <laughs> Matt was good friends with it. It's, not going to be 
Daft Punk popular, it's also not going to be danceable. I mean, I challenge you to dance to any song in Tomorrow's Harvest. But that's because... Just to hear that on on a a nightclub setting, that would be the most depressing buzzkill. Like, yeah, let's let's all just reach back to the good old days when it was the 1970s and, like, a Cold War was just, like, a second away. Okay, scale the summit. Two turns of a key away. That one actually had some brighter moments in it that really did get me mentally stimulated but physically i wouldn't be grooving to i wouldn't be dancing to that's not in the 1970s nuclear war depressing that was just a really solid conceptual idea but you couldn't dance to it even though they're technically still electronica like this i could definitely groove to it but in a very different way true it is a little bit more dour and that all that says is that the nightclub really steers away from dour because why are people there right you want to either meet people drink or both and you're not going to do that if you're dour and laugh and and be merry yeah it's merriment is kind of the focus and that's why i think sometimes also with repetitiveness and these kind of songs it's to kind of enhance merriment because if you're listening to something that kind of comes around again and you're enjoying it when it comes around again you're you're gonna enjoy it yeah Yeah, it's just gonna be it's the idea keep hitting you even but, just like the, the, the giant ball slap in the face, harder, better, faster, stronger, you know, everything, everything positive out there, yeah. just wrapped up into one song. How clever for Daft Punk. But it just means that the, forgetting the music itself, what genre it's in, its intent in many cases has to change the metric for how you rate it. And that's the something that even we do to some extent. We're always looking for specific things things that we will make concessions when we're rating pieces but that's why i i I feel like this album in particular is a four for me because yeah it's missing some of the criteria i usually go for for the high fours to near five albums but it's also doing its job so very very well you know it's being that ambient enhancing music yeah yeah, it it it's, it makes me inclined to pull to pull up on the rating a little bit, but I I think I stick at three point eight only because each each track kind of lacked identity, and we really I think that's the other little thing surrounding nightclub music is we don't really focus on the album, you yeah. know, regardless of how we treat each individual track, but we don't think of nightclub music as being album music yeah. because really then all you're doing is just scanning through the album to try to find that next big hit. Yeah. That next big thing that's just going to like take over. And then the album is just a means to an end, really. It's not meant to be an arc. It's not meant to be a cohesive piece. And then that really becomes the bigger question. Not, not rating tracks, but rating the album. That's the hardest thing for a critic with nightclub music. Right. Well, and also in those nightclub scenes, it's kind of a, a mishmash and a mix. Because you're looking to create this kind of mix for, for that. And, and then there's Jesus further subdivide when you start talking about trance versus true like old school club versus dubstep and now they're doing different things for different scenes and blah 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 it gets really complicated yeah yeah I'm not a fan well so, no so, i am a huge fan i just I, sometimes it's hard so did we reach any conclusions this week i don't really think so i think no that, yes no. yes my conclusion that <laughs> the intent should also help define the metric of the rating system for the piece I think that's it the can. conclusion. I, think, I don't or think it, it can, should. I should. think it can. Exactly. Intent should probably be more in the mix. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. So there you go. The more wow. you know. Wow. John had a summation. That yeah. really doesn't ever happen ever. I use the word metric. I mean, I'm 
and and not as in um, unit of measurement in in the physical sense, but a, a unit of measurement in, in in a broader sense. I stop talking. Your your intelligence goes down as you talk more. <laughs> you hit a high coast walk <laughs> walk exactly. Um, before we get into our pick for next week, which is a little unique um, and exciting, Steve, do you have a spam for us? I do have a spam for you. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. <clears throat> Theatricals at Invalidated uh, Relt equals quotes no follow close quotes close brackets um, and well then there's the other HTML which just says close the link and then close the bold because apparently the whole thing was in bold but I can't tell that all I can do is read the HTML you think so, it was a human I don't know it says it was from Harvey really Harvey? just Harvey Harvey his email address is Harvey um, Harvey what his name is Harvey at least okay well just Harvey well that was Good exciting and interesting and. Not and after all new. the after all the HTML, he says thanks. Well, you're welcome, Harvey. Yeah, sure. All right, we'll thank the robots. Why not? Yeah. It, they they attempted. We might as well try to make amends. You know, you know, like you know, deterrence. There's a specific Preliminary. identity going on here. All right. Right. Anyway, yeah. next week. So, um. Uh, about a year and three months ago at this juncture, more or less, in the first week of July, we reviewed... God Sticks the Invisids Conundrum. Which Steve brought us. And it was an album that wowed us all and was ended up being my favorite album of the year that year in 2013. Um, that was, was episode 51, by the way. It was it was really uh, the first episode of our second season. It ushered in a lot of firsts for us. Um, actually, it's also one of the first YouTube videos we have on now, because that's when I consider our audio quality to get at least pretty decent. Um, um, anyway, that may be amended at some point down the road. But God Sticks was a pretty big it was a pretty big win, at least for most of us. I brought it because I had actually fallen in love with the album for like the previous three months. And then I brought it on, at least it, it met with some some success I would say. I believe it went to uh two fives, I was a five, I was Matt a five. was a five. I was a retrospective five. You were a retrospective five, but you were a four point nine at the time, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, yes. it wasn't perfect. That's right. Um and it was one of those albums that really floored us all, and we all became fans of the band afterwards. Um, also, more importantly, or not more importantly, but importantly, um, Darren Charles and some of the other members of Godsticks have actually been in touch with us since we've created a rapport with them. They like the way we dissected the record. Which was really, really cool, and it's still really, really cool. Right. Um, and it's one of the earliest cases when we did really get contacted directly by the art artist, which is always fun and exciting. Well, they have a new album that just came out. And following their naming structure a bit, this one is called Emergence. Emergence. And um, I've been waiting for it to emerge for two years. <laughs> right. And so we've been getting uh, hints of it for a while, and, and I've, you know, Darren's tweeted us stuff and behind-the-scenes stuff, and they've posted a lot of stuff online. Um, this album, though, however, we've agreed is the first in a while. We haven't done one of these in a while. Is an all-pick, because we're all a fan of this band any of us would have picked and it. And also it's it's our it's our highest rated album as an average yeah. ever to date. So for that reason it, it needs to be kind of an all pick because well, it's setting the bar. It is setting the bar. And this is the this is the first time I think in the history of the show that we're taking a band's sophomore record, a first record rather, and we're doing their sophomore record. We're doing their Excuse second. Excuse me, that was their sophomore record. Oh, this sophomore. is actually their third. They had a, a first album that I did not mention at the time, but it was called Spiral Vendetta. Oh, got it. Okay. So this is their third album. But we were really close to that that second record, and we really enjoyed it. And so I think it's important for us to take a look at this album and see, does it stand up? Is it completely different? Where do we come out at it? Also, our review style back then 
was very different from what it is now. We've evolved a lot, so I'm curious to see how we take on God's Dicks, and a band will, that we've all become fans of. I will have my work cut out for me. That's, that is definitely for sure. Um, so stay tuned for that next week. We're very excited about it. I think I feel like it's kind of a milestone to be coming back to this band. I'm getting more God's Dicks. Yeah, that, that's also the big part of it. I'm happy it's going to land on a round number, 160. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't like round numbers for, for milestones. We, we know it you doesn't. Are. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so... We're taking that on. We hope you'll take the ride with us. Um, also, a thank you again, because I think they're nameless, but a fan of Godsticks recommended our podcast to Godsticks. That's how they knew about it. So thanks to that fan if you're still listening. And if you have a name, please write us so we know your name and we can thank you proper. Awesome. And on that wonderful note, it's time to wrap up. So remember, ladies and gentlemen, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.